Welcome to the public rally. With the expansion of globalization, Americans in the post-Cold War era has had its share of discomfort coming to terms with its new reality. From political oversimplification to the sobering acknowledgement for many that the world they once knew no longer exists. My guest, Tanelli Winsler, offers a smart, comprehensive guide how Americans might approach this new and unpredictable world in his latest book, Isolation Moderation. Tanali Winsler, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was intrigued by your title. What is isolation moderation? What do you, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, basically, isolation moderation, it's a an international foreign policy system. It's based on five key areas that any nation can implement in order to find success in the modern 21st century world. You know, what one of your reviewers called uh, isolation moderation a must-read for rational people. Now, as, as I was reading it, you know, my takeaway from your text is that you're tackling subjects such as illegal immigration, tariffs, military relations, uh, and so forth to suggest that these issues are far more complex and require nuance that's often beyond, let's say, the, the, the left-right axis that dominates our discourse. And I wonder how you saw that. Yeah, so, um, so in many ways, that there is, in those specific issues, there is a, I guess, a left-right perspective on that. But like you said, I took a nuanced approach. So I looked at these issues, and I realized that they were, they were matters that impacted all countries and all nations. And so basically, if these matters were addressed the right way and implemented the right way, they could be used by any nation in order to, to be productive and to have a good foreign policy system. So that's basically what I looked at. It wasn't necessarily through a liberal or a conservative viewpoint. It was through a rational, um, international perspective. So, so when you say that you you look, you didn't necessarily look through a liberal or conservative viewpoint. So it's quite possible, though this wasn't your intention. It's quite possible you could offer a policy that had certain aspects that says liberals might find appealing. Conversely, you might have uh, some proposals that conservatives might find appealing just based on the issue. Would that be correct? Yes, definitely. So throughout the book, there's definitely some issues that conservatives would like and there's issues that liberals would like. So it really depends on you know who the person is and how they see the particular issue. But I would say in general, many of the issues in this particular book would probably be more appealing to conservatives. The follow-up book I'm writing, which is going to cover domestic policy, it's probably going to be more appealing to liberal-minded people. Well, well, let's talk. I'm going to talk about one of the issues that sort of jumped out at me is it related to immigration. And one of the things yeah, sure. I found about reading your texts, uh, again, these these are my takes. You you've taken a subject, and here we are in 2020. And it felt to me as reading what you were offering that you were actually attacking arguments that we were making back in the 1990s as if globalization in its current form hadn't appeared. And I'm hearing you offer a challenge on how to even in a position, how we should even be discussing this issue because what you wrote 
I feel is not how we're exactly talking about the issue in this in terms of immigration. Sure. You're right. A lot of these issues were originally brought up back in the 90s. That's probably when globalization started to become, I guess, a major issue internationally. But a lot of those issues still are relevant today because globalization is still just as big as ever. And it's gotten even more so. So a lot of the issues that were brought on by globalization, I would say they've probably increased. So you're right. Those issues, they were brought up back in the 90s, but they're still relevant today. We're not having the argument, in my view, we're not having the argument that you are pushing forward. It seems to me that the arguments we're having about globalization is, this is my way, no, this is my way, and that, again, using that word again, that nuance that you offer into the discourse, I hear you saying, you know, everybody's sort of half right. Here's another way to be thinking about this. Exactly, that's true. So, like I mentioned before, it's not a like a, a Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative type of idea that I'm 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 implementing here. It's a it's basically it's a set of principles that can be applied by any country. And I looked at it from an independent lens, and I you know studied all these issues in te- intensively, and that's basically how I got to you know what I put out in the book. So when we look at the current discussion around border security. How should that discussion, in your view, take place if we really want to come, if we want to have a resolution to the issue? Yes, so, um, well, border security, it is a, it's a complex issue. It's not a left-right issue. It's not a matter of simply just, you know, build a wall or, you know, just let anyone come in. We have to look at it holistically. So that's why I, I, when I talked about border security, I talked about it from different angles. So the reason why I believe that we should have stronger border security is for national defense purposes. So basically, you know, to protect against, you know, foreign military threats, to deal with issues like illegal immigration, drug trafficking, human trafficking, and all those matters. So it was it's not just a... It's not just a left-right issue, but it's, okay, let's look at the current issue and let's find a solution to it. And when I'm talking about border security, it's not just for the United States, it's for other countries as well. So I know that's controversial here in the U.S., but when other people read these, um, these, um, these matters in other languages, they actually, they find it appealing. They don't, they don't see it through a partisan lens like an American would, but they see it from a rational perspective. And that's what I was trying to offer. Why do you think the conversation about border security, in my view, goes beyond the national security argument into our personal threats, safety? And sometimes it goes in ways that I don't think has room for border security. How do, how, why is the argument different in America? Well, I think the reason it's different is because everything in the United States is so politicized. Like every issue, it just, it seems to just bring on, um, I guess, partisan, you know, arguments on both sides. So in other countries, like border security may not even be like an issue. People may not see it as controversial, but here it's controversial because pretty much everything here becomes a left-right issue. 
I mean, nowadays you can't even like talk about politics without someone getting upset or them not wanting to associate with you or, or anything like that. So what I'm trying to, to bring in this book are, is talking about important issues that nations should address that's not related to a partisan matter. So I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not associated with the U.S. political system at all. I'm, what I'm trying to do is create a system that any nation can apply so that they can you know, better manage their country. You know, you, you said something earlier, and I, and I just made a note, a mental note, and I wanted to come back to it. You said, it's, you know, on one side you said it's more than building a wall. To the average person listening, which is, as you stated, was sort of your target group, the rational people, why isn't building a wall enough? Well, um, building a wall, it's only part of the matter. I'd say it's not just as a, to serve as you know a, a way to you know keep out military threats or to slow down illegal immigration. It's also to define the boundaries of a country. And I believe in order for countries to be successful in the modern age, they need there needs to be you know a definition of where a country begins and where it ends. So just like even in our personal lives, boundaries are healthy. They're also healthy on you know an international and national level as well. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with author Tanali Winsler, and we're discussing his latest book, Isolation Moderation, an excellent uh, uh, observation on sort of a globalization of, of foreign policy. Um, Tanali, if the issue of illegal immigration is one, as you talked about in your book, is, is partly a national security issue that has not been properly addressed by the federal government, what is prohibiting us from establishing a comprehensive guest worker program in your in your in your view? Why can't we just do that? Well, I believe the main reason is the political divide. We have, you know, on two sides the, you know, conservatives, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, they can't agree on on the issue. It's it's all based on party lines. In my view, a guest worker program is it's quite rational. It it would solve a lot of issues. It would allow for you know, people coming here to work and to work here legally and be able to support their families in their home countries. And then it would also allow them to be here legally. So, but in this country, everything here is just, it's very partisan, very toxic. And that's part of the reason why there hasn't been any real immigration reform and, and why we can't come to a, an agreement on the best way to solve the immigration issue. Now, I realize my next question is, is not necessarily in your book per se, but I, but I just want your thoughts based on your last answer. When you look at American politics, and like we just talked about a guest worker program, do we, in your opinion, do we really want a resolution to the immigration problem, or politically, do we just want something to argue about? I think it's probably both. I mean, both sides, they have their you know, their perspectives on it, what they think should be done. But the fact that, you know, there hasn't been any sort of immigration or, you know, policy in years means that, you know, on some level, people do just want to fight about it. But, um, but I mean, I'm, I'm trying to see the bigger picture here. I'm not looking at it from, from that way. I'm, I'm looking at the issue and I'm trying to offer a solution that could work for everybody. How do we marry what is traditionally seen as immigration, illegal immigration, however, however one defines that, 
what happens when we add in those who come here seeking asylum? How should should that be viewed differently? How should we approach that? Well, I, well, when it comes to asylum, it would have to be looked at on a specific basis. So like we, if we have a group of people coming from a country, if they're fleeing an oppressive government, then I get when we take them in, I guess we would have to look at it on the specific situation. Whether are we going to you know take this group of people in permanently or is it temporary? So if we do agree to you know take these groups of people in from an, on a permanent basis, then naturally they should assimilate. So they should learn the national language. They should be able to find employment here. Be able to give back productive, productively to society through you know working, paying taxes, and all those things. You also write, and I'm quoting you here. Generally, citizenship should automatically be provided to those born within the nation's borders if at least one of the parents themselves is a citizen. I highlighted that because the 14th Amendment expressly states that if you're born here, that you are a citizen. So, in your view, is amending the 14th Amendment something that we should consider? Yes, I definitely think we should consider that. When the 14th Amendment was originally introduced, it was basically to give citizenship to African-American slaves because they were denied that right. But um, but generally, they all should have been citizens anyway because they had all been living in the country and you know, all their parents you know, had been living here as well. So basically, so the, I guess what I'm trying to say is that so if you're born in this country and one of your parents is a citizen, then you should get citizenship automatically. Right. I can see, and you've already answered this, but I can see someone pushing back saying, well, if, if a child is born here, the 14th Amendment says they're citizens, and I'm hearing you say, well, we might want to rethink that part of the 14th Amendment. Yes, definitely. So let me just give an example here. Say, so if I'm traveling in another country and um Say I'm married. I have a I have a child in another country. Say they're born in France or the Netherlands. I mean, it really wouldn't make sense for them to you know be a citizen of one of those countries, since you know I'm not I'm not I'm not a citizen that I'm not a citizen there. I don't live there. It would make sense that they would be an American citizen, not necessarily a French or a Dutch citizen. Switching gears momentarily, speaking with author Tenali Winsler, from a historical standpoint. How does the collapse of the Soviet Union, thus the end of the Cold War, impact our immigration policy? Or, or, or you expand that. How does it impact our foreign policy? Well, yes, so it has impacted things in many ways because during the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were the, the two major powers in the world. And at the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union, it basically collapsed, and the U.S. was the main superpower in the world. So originally it was during the Cold War it was a bipolar system with two superpowers. And since then it's been a, a unipolar system with one power, superpower, which has been the US. So it's kind of diff I would say it's kind of difficult to say now because things have changed. It's even debatable whether the US is even, you know, the most important country anymore, whether in terms of like military or political or economic matters, because so much has changed, and you know the U.S. They've over the, the past several years, we've lost a lot of standing on the world stage. So I'd say yes. I mean, it has the collapse of the Soviet Union has definitely impacted 
our foreign policy. But I'd say it's we're kind of going through an uncertain time at the moment because, you know, it, I, it really depends on where the U.S. is going to go. Are we going to remain, you know, the superpower or are we going to, you know, devolve into something else? And it really remains to be seen. While your book is largely focused on foreign policy, uh, and I know you, I know you're writing a, a follow-up text, but talk, if you would, how foreign policy and and domestic policy are are intermingled, and that, and so we can't just have our eye on one without the other. Exactly. Yes. So, um, basically, having a, a strong foreign policy will allow people to live a good life domestically. So, like, we have a strong military, a strong economy, you know, good trade deals, um, strong border security. That allows people in the domestic realm to, you know, live good lives because their lives will be stable. So, um, so basically, they are connected. So, a strong foreign policy will allow for a strong domestic policy. So, they both are are related in that sense. Finally, I'm curious, you know, when you've ha- you know, from the time that you had the book in your head to the time that you actually wrote the text, to the present moment. Has anything changed or anything that you said, wow, I wish I would have written written that at the time while you were going through this process? Probably. I mean, I'm sure there's probably other examples I could have included in the book. So, I mean, looking back, I would have liked to probably discuss more about the um, discussing like Ireland and um, Canada and even the uh, the Punjab region in India, I think those were all good examples that could have been included, and I may include those in a you know a follow up edition if I if I decide to edit the book, or I even may mention them in my next book. But um, but for the most part, I mean, I'm I'm satisfied with what I said in the book, and I think I was able to get my point across with everything that I was trying to say. Well, it, it's it's an excellent read, and it's definitely one that um, if if you for anyone who wants a healthy dose of foreign policy with, without having someone right over their heads, they should definitely uh, read your text. Title of the book is Isolation and Moderation. We have been talking with its author, Tanali Winsler. Tanali, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on the Public Morality. I much appreciated your your wise insight. Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you for having me. It was uh, definitely a pleasure.